I'm Charlie Melcher, founder and director of the Future of Storytelling. Welcome to the FOSS Podcast. Back when we were starting the Future of Storytelling in 2011, I read Frank Rose's book, The Art of Immersion, how the digital generation is remaking Hollywood, Madison Avenue, and the way we tell stories. The book profoundly shaped not only how I think about media, but also what Faust would become. Frank's ideas made me rethink the nature of the relationship between the audience and media creators. I understood then that the Faust Summit shouldn't be structured as an audience sitting in a dark auditorium, passively being lectured down to, but rather should be a participatory, immersive, and co-created experience. Frank Rose has a long history of thinking and writing about media. He was a contributing editor to Wired Magazine for nearly a decade. Currently, he's a senior fellow at Columbia University School of the Arts, where he also founded and leads the Digital Dozen Awards for breakthroughs in storytelling. When he released his new book last year, The Sea We Swim In, How Stories Work in a Data-Driven World, I dove in with great enthusiasm. The book draws on the latest cognitive psychology and neuroscience to explain how we see and make sense of the world using stories and how they are as ubiquitous and essential as the air we breathe. I am delighted to welcome Frank Rose to the podcast. Frank Rose, it's such an honor and delight to have you on the FOSS podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Charlie. It's really great to be here and uh, an honor for me as well. Well, I should just say, Frank, that I owe you personally a huge debt of gratitude that your book was the key to unlocking so many questions that I had uh, struggled with when I was trying to start a conference, start the summit, the future of storytelling. Literally, your book was one of the couple of things that I read at that time that opened up a whole new way to think about storytelling and how the internet was impacting the way we communicate, the nature of, of audience, the changing nature of the audience, the blurring lines between media, that they were all kind of stories. I mean, all of that was hugely influential in the formation of the future of storytelling. And for that, I really thank you. Thank you, Charlie. That's, that's really great to hear because the reason I wrote that book, The Art of Immersion, in the first place was because I was reporting on stuff all at the intersection of media and technology. And at a certain point, I began to realize that the way people were telling stories was changing in response to digital technology. And so I didn't really understand it at the time, but I I sort of had, I guess, faith in my ability to figure it out eventually. And that's why I wrote the book. Well, again, like that, that simple idea that the audience was going from a spectator, and I should say audience or customer, consumer, you, you, know, you interchanged a lot of words there, was going from a passive consumer to an active participant. I mean, that was and is revolutionary. It was and is what's literally happening, I think, even more so being played out and proved out in the world. And it, it had me rethink the nature of what a 
gathering, a live gathering should be. We literally reworked that the whole notion and, and instead made the future storytelling based around having roundtable conversations where the speaker was there at the table and everybody could be part of the discussion and it would be co-created in the room because of you. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, you know, that's, I mean, you certainly captured it uh, precisely. And that idea of, uh, you know, the roundtable discussions being at the heart of what the Future of Storytelling um, Summit is, I've always thought that was just brilliant. It, it makes a huge difference and it really uh, distinguishes uh, FOSS from everything else. And then the other thing that, that kind of really opened my mind, which again, I guess I in instinctively maybe knew, but just that different media were actually blurring together. Like what these silos that we had grown up in, where I was in publishing and somebody else was in film and television and somebody else was in um, advertising and, and, you know, never shall the twain meet. You know, we, we, no one was sort of supposed to talk to each other. <laughs> and, and in The Art of Immersion, you just said, hey, this is all storytelling. And these lines between these, these silos, which may be developed because of the means of production and, and the cost associated, the industrial cost of, of making books or making movies or whatever, had people f specializing and focusing. But when we were all freed to be in the world of zeros and ones and in that you know, even plane of, of digital, then those distinctions really didn't need to be there. And we were all storytellers. Exactly. And, you know, it, partly it was about the means of production, but it was also about the, the means of reception, if you will. You know, it used to be that if you wanted to watch a TV show, you had to turn on the TV. And if you wanted to go to a movie, you had to go to a movie theater. And if you wanted to read a newspaper, you had to pick up the newspaper from your driveway or, or the newsstand or whatever. And, you know, that's all been replaced now. It's all on a screen, and the screen will show anything and everything that you want it to. So there's, you know, yeah, there's really no distinction anymore between uh, those kinds of media. So now I was incredibly excited to receive in the mail <laughs> last year the new book that you wrote a decade following called The Sea We Swim In, How Stories Work in a Data-Driven World. And this was your, if you will, a follow-up in a way to the art of immersion. I guess I should just start by asking what, what was the inspiration for writing this and what are you hoping to accomplish with the new book? A couple of years after The Art of Immersion came out, I was uh, invited to create a, uh, an executive education program at Columbia University on storytelling. And around that time, I began to uh, think, you know, I ought to create a toolkit for people who are taking this program. Kind of the bulk of the book is something that I, you know, created for the exec ed program called the nine key elements of story, um, which is how I choose to break down the whole craft of storytelling, regardless, as you say, regardless of the medium. But then I kind of wrapped it in a couple of other parts. You know, first, the research in neuroscience and cognitive psychology into how we process stories, which is totally fascinating to me. That's the part that I just totally love. And I, I wonder if we could start with that a little bit, just as the book starts, by telling us a little bit about 
the psychologist Jerome Bruner and the work he did for with his Center for Cognitive Studies at Harvard. So the reason the book is called uh, The Sea We Swim In is because I, you know, I became aware of Bruner and his, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, seminal work in storytelling and understanding storytelling. What was fascinating about Bruner to me was first he was he was such a rebel. He was a rebel against behaviorism when he was at Harvard. And B. F. Skinner, the you know father, of course, of behaviorism, was the head of the department at Harvard. Behaviorism said, you know, we can't understand what's going on in the brain. We don't know what's going on in your head, so we'll just study behavior. That was uh, uh, ultimately a dead end. And we now have, you know, mapped much of the brain, and we can see, uh, we can certainly get a sense of what's going on in there. And that has to do, a lot of that has to do with stories. And this was another way that Bruner rewired the way that we think about these things because in 1985 he he published a book in which he basically made the case that there are two modes of thought you know one was the mode of thought that people have been studying for centuries which is logic and reasoning and so forth and what Bruner did was to say well that's important but equally important is this other mode of thought which is stories storytelling. And he called it narrative thinking, is that right? Yes, uh, right. I sort of, uh, you know, brought the term narrative thinking to bear on it because I saw it as kind of analogous to design thinking in the sense that, uh, you know, design thinking means taking the tools of professional designers and making them available to people who aren't professionals, like corporate executives. And uh, narrative thinking means taking the tools of professional storytellers, film directors, journalists, television writer, producers, that sort of thing, and making them available to people who aren't professionals and who don't intend to become professionals, but who are now storytellers because now in the digital age we're all storytellers. You know, we're no longer that passive audience that was supposed to sit back and shut up and watch the TV. I loved what you had summarized of Bruner's in the book, which is that he was stating that that our very sense of reality is shaped, if not defined, by stories, and that that reality is a construct, and that narrative is the chief means of construction. Yes, Bruno was very much of the opinion that we construct our own reality. Uh, you know, yes, maybe there's some kind of objective reality out there, but we're not privy to it because the only way we can determine what reality might be is through our senses, you know, through what happens in our heads. For example, we know that there are colors uh, out there beyond, you know, the visible spectrum. That's why they're called infrared and ultraviolet. We know that there are sounds that other animals can hear, but we cannot. So Bruner was of the opinion that we create our own sense of reality. He he believed also that stories are really critical to that, that stories are kind of the key to our belief systems. The other thing that's critical here, I think, and which Bruner is sort of key to, is this sense that we don't even see the stories around us. That's what the title means. The sea we swim in is actually inspired by a quote 
which I, which I got from one of Bruner's book, where he says, we live in a sea of stories, and like the fish who, according to the proverb, will be the last to discover water, we have our own difficulties grasping what it is like to swim in stories. Mm. Uh, in other words, we just don't see this stuff. We, you know, we take it for granted. It's like we don't see the air that we breathe. And stories have the same effect. So that's a perfect segue into this whole idea of immersion. And what does it really mean to be immersed? What is your definition of immersion? So my concept of immersion really comes from Janet Murray, uh, who is at uh, Georgia Tech, and who more than 20 years ago, well over 20 years ago, wrote uh, an incredibly perceptive uh, book called Hamlet on the Holodeck about how digital technology was going to change the way we tell stories. But she called immersion... She referred to it as the sensation of being surrounded by a completely other reality, as different as water is from air. And we have always had a uh, tendency to immerse ourselves in stories, to want to kind of lose ourselves in stories. And this long predates, you know, digital. It's why you, when you're reading a really great novel, you're on the train, you're liable to miss your stop. And if we go back um, several centuries, it's why Cervantes wrote Don Quixote as a satire of a man who lost his mind from reading too much. He got so immersed in this new medium of reading uh, of books, uh, which had barely existed before. Uh, He got so lost in it that he um, lost his mind and went tilting at windmills. So we've always had this tendency to immerse ourselves and also this fear of, of becoming too immersed. But I've found that uh, immersion is something that we uh, increasingly seem to crave. Yes, and, and oh, there's so many things in, in the book that you talk about that are reflective of how that's evolving with new technologies. Certainly, you know, we all f- know about VR and AR and, and the opportunity to get even more lost in other worlds, right? Even more submerged, <laughs> to use the water metaphor. One of the things I loved that you talked about is, is even just what it means, the definition of the word media, which I had never actually known. Tell us the definition of where does media come from? Right. So uh, media comes from the Latin word for uh, middle. And so the media that you are experiencing, uh, you know, when you read a book or watch a TV show or watch a TikTok video or whatever, the medium is, is what's coming between you and what's actually happening in the story. You know, it's the screen. It's the technology that conveys the story to you. Media can really be seen in two entirely different ways. On one hand, it's a window. It's a window into other people's lives. And it's one of the most critical things, I think, it is to understand about media today. It's very much about where media is headed today, which is going to experiences that are actually unmediated experiences, where we are getting closer to being in the story and experiencing it directly without something in the middle. It seems to me that so much of immersive experience and entertainment these days is really aspiring to being able to give people that direct experience and have it be 
unmediated. I mean, I think that the media is looking to replace itself. <laughs> right, exactly. No, I think that's I think that's absolutely true. So why do you think that co-creation is something that we desire? Why are people looking to be as much makers of their stories as they are consumers? That's a great question. And um, the answer is actually pretty simple, I think. The answer is uh, because we are natural co-creators anyway. It used to be assumed that, uh, you know, when uh, back in the 20th century, when uh, we were all experiencing conventional media, it used to be assumed that our role was to kind of sit back and shut up and, uh, you know, let the TV show or the ad or whatever, you know, just sort of flow over us and we were would be passive receptors. One of the most important findings, I think, of all this um, cognitive science research in the past 25 or 30 years, that's basically untrue. That's not how anybody experiences anything. Uh, you know, we're not passive receptors. We are, you know, even if we are appearing to be passive, we're actually co-creating the experience, the story in our brains with the actors, with, you know, whoever. And so we have this natural desire to be co-creators because that's what we do all the time anyway. Without that, we wouldn't be able to experience stories at all. It makes me think of the work of Clay Shirky and his book Cognitive Surplus, and he talked about that very thing, that it was the delay in the evolution of technology that kept us from being able to have two-way mass media. It wasn't because we didn't want to co-create or have a role to play. It's simply that mass media was unidirectional. We had no, no other option. <laughs> um, but as soon as the internet came, it opened up uh, a two-way medium and unleashed Pandora's box, you know, a flood of people finally wanting to be able to express themselves. I know you, you talk about that in the book, too, that there seem to be more people interested in making videos or movies and writing books and creating their own photographs and content almost than there are people wanting to consume them. It seems maybe after so many decades of being denied <laughs> our natural in instincts to create, uh, we now will, will not be denied. There's a tremendous desire to tell our own stories. I am very curious to hear your thoughts about where this is headed, this explosion of people who want to tell their own stories and create their own content and put it out there. I mean, certainly a lot of people would argue, classic filmmakers or authors or photographers, that most of that content is not very good and it, it just sort of waters down the value of the good stuff. Do you think that that's true? Only to a point. I, I think it's, um, you know, probably true that most of it is not terribly good because most of anything is not terribly good, uh, you know, including stuff that gets past the gatekeepers. But I don't think that because of that, it waters down the value of what is good, uh, you know, quite the opposite, actually. What we have now is, uh, I think, a situation in which, uh, you know, really anything goes. In the early days of the Internet, this was viewed, I think, quite naively as, uh, you know, kind of a wonderful thing that we were headed for, toward this kind of informational utopia. What we have to do now is find a way to 
tell stories that are more effective than the stories that are out there that would divide us, that would promote hate, that would um, do those sorts of things that I consider quite negative. I definitely think it's one of the messages of your book, right? That only by understanding how stories work and how they can prey on the emotions can we create better stories to counter the negative ones. Right, exactly, exactly. One of those um, stories, if you will, at the beginning of the book is uh, uh, about this guy in Bosnia, in Sarajevo, who uh, grew up, he was a little kid during the, during the war there, uh, which lasted for several years and uh, killed more than 10% of the population of Sarajevo and, and, you know, scarred the place for a very, very long time. And it was basically ethnic hatred and ethnic cleansing. The Serbs blockaded Sarajevo and, uh, you know, fired indiscriminately and sometimes quite discriminately targeting little kids. He did this quite remarkable thing. He took the house where he had grown up and he turned it into a a form of bed and breakfast, but not a conventional B&B, but one where you could go to experience what it was like during the war. And people went and they were quite changed. What he said that really stuck with me was, uh, you know, people think it's, um, you know, you can come here and it's kind of cool to experience this. It's not cool. It's not cool at all. It's what can happen anywhere where there are people. And we're seeing that right now in Ukraine. We're seeing just the worst of human nature. And that's something that we need to figure out how to deal with. Yes, I appreciate your referencing an immersive experience that helps to teach uh, a kind of history that helps us to experience uh, not just entertainment, but other types of sobering lessons that we need to learn from the past in order to try to not repeat them. I, I share with you this idea that we had originally had a kind of utopian vision of what was possible when all of a sudden everyone, when the gatekeepers were removed and all of a sudden everyone had access to the means of not just production but distribution and wasn't this going to be a wonderful kumbaya moment when you know, the world would come together and be empathetic with one another through the powers of story and information and um and in fact, we, we've been reminded that these are just at the end of the day tools and sometimes used for good and sometimes used very much for evil. Yes, exactly. And it's not the case that you know, these are in any way created by digital technology or the internet. Uh, you know, look at World War II, look at the Nazis. But at the same time, the way the internet works and the way the internet has been made to work by some of the now largest and most valuable publicly traded companies in the world, I'm talking about Alphabet and Facebook or now Meta, the way in which uh, these companies work is not steering us in the right direction, quite the opposite. You know, this idea of sort of algorithmic targeting and the idea that we are being encouraged, uh, you know, subtly or not so subtly to uh, spend more and more time online watching videos or whatever that are going to engage us at a greater and greater level, you know, it's having horrific consequences. In the book, you mention a number of sort of studies that uh, look at 
the power of statistics or information data versus the power of stories. And there seems to be quite convincing evidence that stories are much more influential and are, are, have a bigger impact on people than, than even the most convincing data. I wonder if you could share a little bit about those studies. Sure. No, it's, it's quite interesting. And, you know, my feeling is that data is extremely useful at understanding what's happening. If you are a company or an organization or whatever that, uh, you know, needs to understand what's going on in the world, data properly used can, can give you remarkable insights. But that doesn't mean that it's very useful at convincing people of anything uh, or of changing people's opinions. There have been multiple studies that show, for example, what happens when, when people are asked to give money to uh, you know, starving children in Africa or wherever. And what happens is, uh, time and again, studies have shown that if it's an individual child, somebody who has a name and a face, and you see, even if it's only like a few sentences about them, a couple of sentences, uh, people will give money. People will have empathy uh, for that child, and they will share it. If it's uh, 1,000 kids or 10,000 kids or whatever, nowhere near that. People will give less money to two kids than they will to one. And one of the points you make is in the book is that people connect to those individual stories through detail, that it's actually the richness of the descriptions and, and things that make it feel more authentic or more real that lead to the stronger power of those stories. How important is detail in storytelling? I think it's really critical. I mean, it does depend on, on what kind of story you're trying to tell and how you're telling it. It doesn't have to be huge amounts of detail, but it has to be telling detail. It has to be something that is going to make you able to connect empathetically with whoever it is you're reading about or watching or whatever. I think that's really critical as well. Well, let me ask you, Frank, is there anything that we didn't discuss that you would like to, that you think is important to, to talk about or you'd like to share? Well, there is one thing I'd like to share, which is, uh, you know, related to this idea uh, that's expressed in the title of the book, this idea that there's this whole, this whole world that we don't even see because it's so familiar to us. And um, there was another quote that I came across, and this one was from David Foster Wallace, and he gave a talk in 2005, a commencement address at Kenyon College in Ohio. The title of the talk was This is Water. And at the beginning of it, he told this little joke, which is there are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? <laughs> uh, Wallace went on to say is, it means being conscious and aware enough to choose what you pay attention to and to choose how you construct meaning from experience. Because if you cannot or will not exercise this kind of choice in adult life, you will be totally hosed. So that's why I think stories are so important. Understanding stories and how they work is so important. That's why I wrote this book. Mm. 
the message I always love to also remind our listeners is that we have a moral responsibility as storytellers to be responsible in the stories that we tell because they are literally creating the reality of the world for others. So I thank you, Frank, so much. I thank you for writing this book, for writing both of your books, for the stories that you tell and the wisdom that you share. You and I, I have to say, we, we swim in a lot of the same lanes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Well, thank you, Charlie. It's really delightful to have this conversation with you with uh, someone who is so immersed in stories and, and how they work and what they mean. So thank you for having me on. My sincere thanks to Frank Rose for joining me on today's show. You can learn more about his work and purchase his books through our website at fost.org. Thank you for listening to the FOSS Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, I'd really appreciate if you'd give us a review. FOST also produces a monthly newsletter filled with valuable information for storytellers of all kinds, as well as our recommendations for cool, immersive stories you can experience in person and online. You can subscribe for free by visiting the link in this episode's description or on our website at fost.org. The FOSS Podcast is produced by Melcher Media in collaboration with our talented production partner, Charts and Leisure. I hope we'll see you again soon for another deep dive into the world of storytelling. Until then, please be safe, stay strong, and story on. Story on.